Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. And by this point in the season, it's ready for you to start running for your group as soon as tonight, if you're so inclined. As you well know by this point, this season is all about the Fallout role-playing game. So if you still need a copy of the rulebook, stop by your local game or bookshop, or check out the Modifius website at modiphius.net. Before we hit up this week's build and the recap of my group session from last week, I need to cover a couple of things I missed when I recorded last week's episode. And right off the bat, I need to apologize for last week's episode being late. I had it written on time, but due to some exceptionally bad time management on my part, combined with my computer giving me a couple of fits on Thursday, I wound up having to work with my backup gear to edit, and that meant I edited at work, so that meant the show didn't get posted until later in the morning on Friday. I've got the computer issues worked out, so we shouldn't be having that problem again. Now, I noticed two game-specific issues while I was editing the episode. The first is returning any borrowed big guns and ammunition to the friend the group borrowed it from. We're not going to make that real hard on them. Once they get out of the hospital with Corinth and Igmon, they can cut that direction to return the items. If they still have ammo left, they have to give that up as well. If they either don't return the weapons or they don't give back all the ammo, nothing's going to happen to them right now. This is going to be someone that'll turn up to be a thorn in the group's side down the line, Like in one of those cases where they'll start saying things like, if one more thing goes wrong, yeah, that's when he's going to pop up and get him his evens. The other question I got was, what happens if the group fails to keep Corinth and Igmon alive? Now, this one could be tricky if you choose to play it that way. Basically, so long as they're honest with Victor in describing the situation and they make it apparent that they tried everything in their power to rescue them alive, Victor is going to understand. He'll acknowledge their attempt, and while he will be grieving, he'll thank the group for doing what they could to bring his family back to him. He'll still hand over the information his sister got for him, and we'll get to what that is next week. I mean, after all, we need to get into what you came for this week, and we need to begin, as we always do, with a recap of what we built last week. Last week, we finally got around to getting our group over to Barnes Hospital, since they now have not only one, but two tasks to accomplish there. We built out the rescue of Corinth and Igmond, and the group, if they were smart, utilized a hole in the wall of the building to make their entrance, then made their way to the basement, where they were able to free the two men, then got them back to Diamond Pass, where Victor had a surgeon ready to do her best to save them. Victor provided the group with as much information as he'd been able to gather in a short amount of time, but he also acknowledged understanding their wanting to head back to the hospital to finish their current task list. Before we build, I realize there are two things we need to do here. First, we need to level the group up. It's been a little bit. You know the deal by this point, so no need to repeat it here. The other thing that we need to do is reset action points. I know for a fact we haven't done that in a while, so set them back to one for each member of the group for your pool and leave their pool empty until they fill it up. All right, as we pick up this week, the group is still in Diamond Pass, and we do need to note that it's getting pretty late in the day and the group's done a lot of work in a short amount of time. They are probably tired and somewhat injured, so I certainly wouldn't blame them if they want to catch a couple of hours of sleep and get a meal, so if they want to do that, by all means do so. They also might want to spend some caps to get more ammo, stim packs, or even better weapons if they can. Again, do so if that's the case. 
By this point, the group's probably got a regular thing for sleeping. So go with that and we'll pick up once they've all woken up. However, I know my group. And yes, I know that's a phrase I say a lot. They're going to want to at least check out the hospital while their previous trip there is still pretty fresh. Truth be told, it doesn't matter when the group chooses to go. This build is going to be exactly the same. Uh, We've covered the approach before, so it's going to be very much the same. But you know me, we got to shake things up a little bit. The mindset here is that by this point, Garcin Tactical is very well aware of the fact that Corinth and Igmon escaped. And unbeknownst to the PCs, they've got video evidence of their group sneaking into the building or blasting their way in if that's what they did. And the company has sent several teams out into the city to search for them. Each team is comprised of one more than the total number of players in the group. And we're going to use those handy dandy Brotherhood of Steel stats we've been using. So um, pull those out of your file, have them ready to go. Matter of fact, we're going to need them pretty much as soon as the group gets past the old St. Louis University and begins to make their way down to the hospital. Doesn't matter if they go the way they went previously, which is straight down Forest Park Parkway, or if they head down one of the other side streets and work their way around to the hospital. Whatever way they go, they are going to run into a team and that team is going to shoot on sight. So there's no talk on their way out of this. Now, you can set the field up however you want to. It can be an open field battle, or there can be old cars, piles of rubble, or other types of cover available. This should be a good test for your players, and by that I mean it should take several rounds to work through and should cause the group to use a decent amount of their resources on hand. Again, not looking to kill anybody, just challenge them. And during the fight, occasionally have one of the Garson tactical men make mention of the fact that the company knows the group was responsible for the rescue of Corinth and Igmon, and that Garson will continue to hunt them down until they finish the job. The overall reason for this is that we want to have the group thinking more tactically in their decision-making moving forward. And the reason for that is that we're going to start running some interactions with NPCs and creatures above the character level of the group, and choosing to just run into the situation guns a-blazing could be deadly for the group as a whole. But that's going to become apparent momentarily, so let's just build on. With the conflict completed, the group can head for the hospital. First things first, while the laser turrets and protectrons they took out on the last trip have not been replaced yet, there are way more armed men on site, and they've got six six six-man patrols working around the building. Space them out so that if you're watching a specific spot, a group gets into the range of that spot about every five minutes or so. It's also a pretty good bet that they're going to want to head back to the hole in the building they used previously, if that's how they did get in last time, in order to make their entrance easier. They're quickly going to realize that that option has been taken away from them, or at least it's made harder for them, as there's another six-man team standing guard at that part of the wall, and they are not moving. So this is where the group is going to have to get more tactical. They've already scoped out the various entrances, with the exception of one since I really didn't detail it last week. That entrance, the ER entrance, is double the size of a regular entrance. It's got a four-man team on it with the laser turret on the roof and the mounted turrets on either side. However, this entrance is also made of glass, so as big as it is, it also allows for other ways to get into the building if you can deal with the stuff guarding it. There is also another option, and my group's action in our game last week gave me the idea for this. About a hundred yards or so southeast of the hospital building is an old parking garage. The top level's in pretty bad shape, but the rest of it looks pretty good. 
If they can figure out a way to jury rig a ramp or a ladder or something, they can get onto that top floor, which gives them a clear sight line onto the entire roof of the hospital itself. And yes, there are still laser turrets on the roof, short the ones they took out. However, with the thought of only having to deal with those, this might be an option the more stealthy folks in the group might want to consider. Since we've already gone over how to handle getting in all the other entrances, not really going to repeat that here, and the ER would be the same as any of the other entrances. Just refer back to the build materials from last week if your group tries one of those. What we're going to build out this week is this new option, since it's a different idea than what we've already built out. First things first, they're going to need to figure out if there are any large metal boxes or fans or anything on the roof, and with a roof this size, there's going to be about a half a dozen or so of them so they'll have plenty to choose from. However, I am building this out to cover the two that I think are the best options for the group, and if your group chooses another, you can work it out how you think is best for your group. There's one that looks to be about 60 feet in from the southeast corner of the building, and it's got two laser turrets covering it. There's also one about 80 feet back from the exact center of the eastern wall of the building, but it's got three covering it. So, the group's got some thinking and work to do. Regardless of how they eventually get over there, they're going to need to deal with the turrets first. Easiest way to do that is to shoot them. However, there are two things the group will need to consider when doing this. The first is that by shooting from the garage at the turrets, they will draw a bit of attention. However, if they can coordinate their fire and take the turrets out quickly, because of the distance from the building, it's possible that the guards on the ground will discount it as gunfire from further away. You will be making a roll, and we'll do that in a minute. The other thing that needs to be considered is that they're a hundred yards away. That's going to put them at long range. So without a rifle to use, you're going to have some players unable to act. There are a few options they could go with, and we'll detail them momentarily, but none of them are perfect solutions. So let's work through our issues here. I said you're going to roll to see if the guards on the ground take notice of the shots being fired over their heads. You are going to make a standard 2d20 roll with a target number of 17. You need three successes, but I'm going to handicap you a bit here. Don't use action points to buy more dice. We really want the group to pull off the rule of cool here because of the storytelling. That being said, if you want to make it harder on them, go ahead and buy yourself another die or two. Success on the roll means that one of the patrols realizes that the shots being fired are coming from close by and they'll begin to investigate the area to the southeast. It's going to take them a bit to get there and figure out that the shots are coming from the top floor. And even if they do that, they're going to clear the garage level by level for their own safety. So it can be reasonably claimed that the group's got between 7 and 10 minutes before they have to deal with the guards, which if they're rolling well, should be more than enough time. Now, There are some options, like I said, for those characters without rifles. If someone's got a set of binoculars, they can basically act as a spotter for one of the shooters. And if that's the case, take one level of difficulty off for each of their shots. There's also the idea of acting as a distraction for the guards, but that would require leaving the roof to actually go distract them. And unless it's going to be a big fire or some sort of explosion, they're going to risk getting caught by the guards. If that happens, they'll be getting the Corinth and Igmon treatment in a few, so get those industrial size hooks sharpened and ready to go. With the turrets dealt with, the next major hurdle for the group is how do they get from where they are to where they want to be. 
If the group's got enough rope and a robot, it's simple. They tie all the ropes together, which should work if the group's got a length of rope for each character. Do that and the robot, so long as it's a Mr. Handy, Mr. Gutsy, you know, something with jets, can float over to the roof and find a way to tie it off. The group then ties their end off on the garage rooftop. Then what do we do? We ease on down the line to the roof. But what do we do if the group doesn't have enough rope? Two options here. One is to just go ahead and do the full-on assault of the building. It's going to cost a lot of resources and maybe result in a party member dying since they'll be facing about double their number in the first round and another six roughly every two rounds after that since the various patrol groups will be making their way around to wherever the fighting is. But if your group's insistent on doing it, do it. I just suggest making sure you've got a fresh stack of character sheets ready for when they're done. Just saying. The smart move, if they don't have enough rope, would be to, again, scurry back to Diamond Pass, buy what they need, and scurry back. Fortunately for them, it'll be like they hit pause on a video game. Since they took out the turrets without anyone noticing, then they can get back into their spots and do their thing. And even if they did get a patrol going out after them, they surely dealt with them. So, again, pick up where they left off. The issue here would then be if they don't have a robot to take the rope over to the hospital roof. I mean, we're still talking about 100 yards, and I'm sorry, but the best throwers in the world wouldn't be able to throw a rope with some sort of hook on it that far and guarantee it's going to stick and stay in place. In that case, they're going to have to get creative. And since I'm having issues being creative at all this week, I'm going to leave that for you to work through. Let me know how it goes, though, because we can offer it up as advice for our listeners. But your group has a Mr. Handy, right? So let's work out what happens next. I did say they needed to ease on down the line to the roof, but we're not going to just hand that to them. They need to make strength plus athletic rolls, difficulty three. I was going to make that a four, but I'm invoking my right to rule of cool and keeping it where it is. You, of course, can go with the higher number. I won't tell anybody. And since it's life or death here, they need to seriously consider spending action points if they've got them or luck points to buy enough dice to make it happen. Otherwise, they will fall four stories and land on concrete. I don't have to tell you what happens next, but it ends with you handing that player a new character sheet and having them get to it. If, by chance, somebody succeeds but rolls a 20 for a complication, we're going to go with something falling off of them as they make their way across. If you really want to be cruel to them, make it a weapon or some ammo. However you want to do it, a complication should cost them something that they might need later. Now, don't let them lose something that's crucial to the storyline, like the data card they just got from Victor, but make it something they'll need. Hey, it's the cost of doing business sometimes. Once on the roof, they're going to find themselves behind a three-foot-high metal box, basically. You know what I'm talking about, the type that encases electrical motors and such on the roofs of big buildings. In this case, however, it's empty. Whatever it had once been shielding is long gone, but the box remains. The fastest, quietest way to deal with it is to laser a hole in it large enough for everyone to get through it. Once that's done, they'll need to drop a section of rope down to the floor below as they'll be on the remnants of the fourth floor of the building, which for the record is exactly where they need to be. They will, of course, check to see if the coast is clear, and for the moment it is. So let's get them down the rope and into the hallway, and then let's pause this idea here for just a moment. Why? (laughs) Well, somebody's group is going to use the brute force method to get into the hospital, and I owe it to them to lay out how that's going to work. 
So if your group did it the stealthy way, you got a minute or so to refill your beverage before we get back to you. So uh, to borrow an old and really antiquated phrase, smoke them if you got them. Now, as we detailed earlier, the full frontal assault is going to get messy. Even if the group works at a distance to pick off guards and or laser turrets, they're still going to have to deal with a bunch of guards and lasers before they can get inside, and it'll no doubt turn into a closer quarters fight than they'd like. Also, don't forget that the Protectron robots are still wandering around out there, any that were left from before, so make sure they get involved in the fight as well. All of that being said, if your group made it this far, they get access to the building. They really don't have time to stop once they're inside the doors, as the entire complex is going to be aware they're there. So they're going to be in constant conflict as they make their way towards the third, then fourth floors. There's a grand staircase to the right of the group as they enter, and it will get them up to the second floor. Once they get up there, though, they're going to face two teams of guards, one as soon as they get up on the floor, and another as they make their way from the west side of the building to the east side, which is where the next set of stairs are. These are teams of one more than the number of party members, and we're still using the Brotherhood of Steel stats. Now, if the group really needs to take a minute to heal themselves, they can lockpick a door on this floor, which has a difficulty of two, and take their moment. However, make it clear to them that the guards here are very aware that they're here, so they don't have a lot of time for small talk. And if they decide they want to search every room on every floor, it's going to be three patrols they face on the first floor and the second floor, since they're going to keep running into guards, sweeping the building, looking for them. Again, at some point, they need to realize it's time to cut this crap off and get as far up into the building as possible, as quickly as possible. Plus, there's inevitably going to come a point where they start running low on ammo. Though I'll admit, looting the bodies of the men they drop is going to help them, they just may have to switch weapons. Now, I have hinted that the third floor would house the Jessup Chemicals offices, and it does. It also has a security door they'll need to get through. Thanks to their frontal assault, the intelligence plus science difficulty to pick it will now be a four, thanks to these security protocols kicking into place. It is not a glass door. These guys were smarter than that and put a reinforced door in place. That being said, if they can't pick it, it might occur to one of them that while the door is reinforced, the wall on either side of it might not be. And they'd be correct. So it means the group could brute force their way in. But that would put them at a bit of a disadvantage when they do get in, as the guards they meet inside will already have the drop on them, which means they all act first in round one. For round two, use your initiative as you usually would. Once they've dealt with that patrol, there'll be one more to deal with on this floor. Then they can hack the computers here to see what they can come up with. Unfortunately for them, the security protocols kicking in means that the computers have deleted pretty much all of the information contained on them by the time the group can hack them, but they can pick up a couple of morsels and we'll lay that out later on. The stairs to the fourth floor are on the west side of the building and they smell the death before they even make the floor. So the way the basic layout looks is about a third of the floor was destroyed when the bombs went off. Apparently, Jessup Chemicals just decided to build a wall to close off what was left and then made sure the floor would hold. They also took two thirds of this level, removed all of the walls and turned it into some sort of laboratory experiment site. The experiments, as the group knows by now, were definitely grisly. They see arms, legs, organs. You get the picture. They're lying on tables or dumped into trash cans. They smell the blood that's basically dried into the tables and floors, 
and they note there are about a half a dozen dead bodies still strapped to the tables. They also notice a very bare spot on one of the tables. Looks like something about the size of a computer had been sitting on it until very recently. However, it's gone, and a search of the room yields nothing they can use. There is a door on the east wall of the building, and since they're on the inside, they can unlock it themselves and open it. The unused third of the floor is a 30-foot corridor with two storage offices about 15 feet down, one door on either side of the corridor. At this point, this group needs to get out of the building, regroup, figure out what data they've gotten, and make their next move. This is where we go back to our group that came in the silent way. They are in that 30-foot long corridor, and they see the two doors on either side of the hallway about halfway down. They're unlocked, and they note that these are, as I noted, storage. Flasks, beakers, computer paper for dot matrix printers for you OGs, pens, pencils, and a ton of scientific and basic office supplies, basically. The door at the end of the hall is locked, so from this side, it'll have to be picked or kicked in. And since it's a good old-fashioned wooden door, a good kick would blow it open. But since the group has no idea who or what is behind it, they're going to want to pick it. Difficulty one, because they obviously didn't anticipate anybody getting in from here. And if they want to press their ears to the door to listen before they go in, they hear a couple of men arguing about how you ruined the experiment. It'll be a back and forth blame game with some rather crude comments being made by each man. When they get the door open and get into the room, they find a neater version of the scene I laid out for the frontal assault. While there are four dead bodies on tables in the room, things seem to still be fairly neat and tidy. The medical waste has been properly disposed of, and there's not a ton of blood everywhere. Still reeks of death, but that's to be expected. Four men in white lab coats are standing in approximately the middle of the room, and they're obviously engaged in a heated argument. In fact, they are so preoccupied, they won't notice the group until they're right on top of them. These aren't combat NPCs. They'll fold like a house of cards, which will make getting information out of them fairly easily. There are no rules necessary, so long as the group asks the right questions to get the answers. And here's the stuff they can get. The men all work for Jessup Chemicals, and they've been working on an injection that virtually ensures that any transplant will not only take, but thrive. And while they've been having some success with organ transplant, attaching new limbs has been proving difficult. In fact, they haven't had a single success yet, and the majority of their patients have died on the table. They have no idea what's become of the rare survivors they've had. Most of the organ transplants they've done have been either on Jessup supervisors or Garson tactical employees, so the assumptions would be that those individuals went back to their jobs. However, for the limb replacements, those individuals were transported off-site by Garson employees, so they really have no idea where they went. They know nothing about the landing or dome projects, but they are aware of the Union Station facility, as that's where all the chemical formulas they come up with are produced before being delivered to them to test. They have no idea why they're doing the project they're doing. They just know they're very well paid to do it. That's, that's about it. About what they can tell them. I got a couple more things that'll come up in a minute, but for now, that's it. The group does see a computer sitting on a table not too far from where the men were arguing, and it's fully operational. If asked, the men confirm that it's got all of their research notes on it. It's unlocked, and a quick check confirms the notes part, but there's also a file labeled JAJE Project. It's a heavily encoded file, but they can download everything onto the data cards they used for the Union Station job, and they'll figure it out later. 
If they ask the men what is on the third floor, they'll respond that it's Garson's security and administration offices, and they'll note that they keep a lot of guards down there. It's almost like they think we're doing something somebody might want to steal. Yeah, I'm expecting a smart aleck answer from my group on that one. The group should have figured out the clock's ticking on this, as the longer they're in here, the greater the chances somebody's going to come in and find them. There aren't any samples of the chemicals they've been using, so other than the info they downloaded, they don't have anything else to take. There is one more piece of information I do want to put out there that I forgot to put. These guys don't know the name Jackson Denman, but they do know the name Jessica Denman. She's the head of Jessup Chemicals, and she frequently drops in to check their progress. She's almost obsessed with the limb procedures and continues to push them to find success. In fact, she sent three teams of scientists who failed her away, and the assumption is that they are no longer among the living. She was on site yesterday and was definitely not happy with their lack of progress. Okay, so now that is all of the information. The group now has to figure out what they're going to do with these four dudes. Now, they can kill them, of course. But unless they do it quietly, they're smart enough to know they risk alerting security. They can also threaten the men. That's charisma plus speech difficulty too. They could also just try to politely persuade them to not talk. Same role. Either way, once they've done what they're going to do, they need to head back out the way they came in, reverse the process with the same roles, and once they're back to the garage, they can head back to Diamond Pass or wherever they're going to check the data and figure out what's happening next. And that is where we're going to end our build for this week. Next week, we'll start with an information dump as we'll lay out all of the information our group picked up in this heist, plus the information they got from Victor. Once that's done, we'll get back to building. But now it is time to cover what my group did last week with the stuff we wrote. And I realized I forgot to write our recap of what we did in the previous session, but that's okay. Let's just go ahead and do what we do. We picked our session up right after where we had left two weeks ago with the group having given Amber the box from Victor, her giving them the note, and her strongly advising the group to head back to Victor. When the group got about five blocks or so down the street, they observed the explosion of the building, which Jim had predicted as we were starting the session, and he and Scott were a bit annoyed that Victor had lied to them about what they were carrying not being a danger to them. However, I took a GM moment to remind them that one could pack a lot of C4 or a C4-like substance into a box the size of what they were carrying, and C4 will not explode without a detonator. So as long as all they had was the C4, or whatever the equivalent would be for our game, they were never in any real danger. They made their way back towards Diamond Pass, but decided again to scope out the Opera House, since they had to walk past it on the way back. By this point, I decided that it was starting to get dark, since the entire campaign to this point has taken place in like a day. So as they were passing, they noticed that the security in front of the building was still there, but the security across the street from it was gone. They also noticed all of the people exiting the building, including one Barnabas O'Reilly. It occurs to me at this point, you might be wondering where the random encounters we've been building into the campaign have taken off to, and I'll explain. I try to follow two rules when I'm running a game, the rule of cool and the rule of good storytelling. So when my players are doing things that hit one of those two rules, if not both, I tend to reward that. And it typically requires me to make some alterations. Since my group has really been role-playing well, I decided that in order to keep encouraging that, it'd be a good idea to drop some of the extra encounters I put in there and allow them to just keep doing what they've been doing so far. Oh, and for the record, we've got a massive rule of cool moment coming up a little later on. So yeah, you definitely want to listen. 
The group made a decision that because of the sensitive time frame to find and bring back the kidnapped Juliet, they'd head directly to the landing and see what they could do since they already had the letter they needed to prove they completed the first job. When they got to the landing, they chose to be very methodical about their recon work. They decided to maintain as much distance as they could from the building in question and noticed the guards up front that we'd put there in the build. A very interesting question was posed to me, and that was whether or not Tyler would have schematics of the building in question, as he is a pre-war robot who'd been in the St. Louis area. I had Tyler roll intelligence plus science, and when Jim asked for Tyler's difficulty, I told him it was a sliding scale, as I had come up with two pieces of information I wanted to give him depending on the number of successes he had. Fortunately, he reached my target number, and he therefore knew the following, which he shared with the group. He does have the schematics of the building in question. However, the plans he has show the building as being a two-story warehouse before the war. If, as they've been led to believe, there's some sort of facility here for holding prisoners, it would have required some significant alterations, which Tyler wouldn't have. Through digging through his memory files, Tyler also notes a letter with the stationery of the Civil Defense Service dated one week before the bombs dropped, detailing plans to remodel the building with steel-reinforced wall lined with lead and sheathed in concrete. However, since the bombs dropped so quickly after the letter was written, he has no idea if this actually happened. And there's a building directly behind the building in question that is the exact shape and size of the address they were given. Tyler also has schematics for it, and before the war, it was a research laboratory, and that layout would have been a logical one for a redesign for holding prisoners. Now, it was that last bit of information that caused the group to rethink things a bit. Rather than immediately risk a frontal assault, which is what we had designed this encounter to be, they headed over a block to check out the building behind the address in question. Now, I had to off-the-cuff this, since I hadn't anticipated them doing this, but I think it worked out okay, so let's discuss what I did in case it comes up in your game. And if it already has and you came up with something different, hit me up and let me know what it was. I decided that the building behind our location had been damaged during the bombing. It wasn't completely knocked down, but the roof had completely collapsed, leaving an almost ramp of bricks headed up to what was the second floor. When the group saw nothing but a solid wall and no connection, because they thought maybe the two buildings connected, Jim decided to elevate since he can do that because he's a robot and see if there was anything on the third floor of the building next door. There wasn't. I had that one basically blown out so there was no walls or floor. I knew what was coming next and Jim and Tyler didn't disappoint. They decided to pull their Kool-Aid man stunt again and go busting through the wall. Needless to say, they found out that the steel reinforcement plans had gone into effect at some point and they both clanged off the steel sheets that are part of the wall. That meant the group needed to rethink their strategy, and a couple of them went back around to the front of the building, thinking the noise might have caused the guards on the door to head back into the building to check on what happened. Needless to say, they were rather disappointed to find all four men still there. I did that because you and I both know there's still a decent number of guards in the building, so they would be the one to check on things. So this is where we get a couple of rule of cool moments. It occurred to Scott that there should be some sort of soft spot on the roof of the building because there'd be at least one point where there would be a roof fan or a vent or something for the HVAC system. Jim again flew up to check out the roof and I gave him not one, but three spots, including one just on the other side of the wall they couldn't bust through. Jim and Tyler decided, well, they could float down to that roof from the other building pretty easily. And they also realized that while one of them could not easily pick up and carry a group member, 
If both of them worked together in tandem, they could each pick up a group member. Well, together they could pick up a group member, take them over to the roof, set them down, lather, rinse, repeat. That's what they did. Now, I had to then do a little more thinking on my feet because they asked how the roof fans were secured. I just went with them being bolted to the roof. So Jim used his laser to cut the one closest to the other building. They managed to get it moved out of the way. And Aniston made the decision to drop down into the ductwork. What I did decide was that this ductwork was old and that it probably hadn't been reinforced or otherwise maintained in an appropriate manner, mostly because the facility has a more modern, for fallout anyway, air filtration and conditioning system. So first man through busted through the ductwork and landed on the desk, which means Aniston was basically sitting on top of the desk of the overseer of the facility and looking him straight in the eyeballs. Needless to say, that meant both of them had pretty shocked looks on their faces. Gabe dropped in shortly after Aniston while Scott took up a cover position from the roof, making sure that not only were they covered from the overseer, but also those who might enter the office. Jim also came down into the room and it was the three of them attempting to persuade the overseer to give them keys and access codes for the facility, but he was exceptionally unwilling to do so. During the discussion, he pressed a button on the underside of his desk and six armed troops lined the door to the office, rifles pointing at the players. While all of this was going on, Tyler cut the other two roof fans loose to check out what things looked like below, and Braden and Max were assisting. Neither of the other two fans still had ductwork attached, and one went two stories down and landed in the outer hallway, which is where we would have had troops storm out through to head outside. The other landed just inside the front doors. This is where the major rule of cool moment comes into play. There was a quick discussion between Jim and those on the roof since Jim and Tyler could easily communicate about using explosives. Going through their inventories, Max had two missiles he'd picked up when the group took stuff off of bodies a couple of encounters back. However, he does not have a missile launcher. Now, normally that'd be a problem. But for anyone who knows how missile ordnance, or at least the kinds of missiles that would be a part of that retro-futuristic style work... Think of the stories we've heard about soldiers in World War II who would pound the butt end of a missile onto a rod or pin really hard, then chuck it like a grenade. You could really do that, and the science does back it up. So, Jim, Scott, and myself explained that concept to Max because even though he understood it, he questioned whether it was actually possible to do it. And once everybody pointed out that the GM was telling him he could do it, he decided to drop a missile using this method onto the four guards on the outside of the building. Now, when he first decided to do this, we didn't know how much damage it would do. Needless to say, 11 dice of damage, even if you have lousy results, should still be enough in a radius of damage to kill the four guards. Yeah, he did enough damage to turn those guards into chunks and do enough damage to the front of the building to distract all of the remaining guards and convince them to head to the front of the building. Simultaneously with this, Gabe and Aniston had finally had enough of the stalling and Gabe shot the overseer in the head, then swiped his key cards. Jim used them to access the computer terminal in the office. This is where I decided to bring in something from the build we did a couple of weeks ago, and you'll see what I mean momentarily. There were three options, cameras, security, special. Jim took control of the cameras and was able to see the room on the ground floor and noticed the four men in lab coats doing something to someone on a gurney. For security, he had the option to take control of the Protectrons, and he used this control to order them to protect the person being worked on. He tried to order them to kill the men in coats, but they responded that it required a higher level of authority than what he had. But when he changed the order to a protection order, 
The Protectrons responded, and I noted that Jim saw the lasers being fired on the cameras. While that was going on, the rest of the guards made their way outside. Max had one missile left, and he did the same thing with this one that he did with the previous one, and enough damage was done to kill the rest of the guards. Again, kids, rule of cool. Jim then decided to open the final file, and that's when the building's self-destruct started. Jim ordered the Protectrons to take the woman to a safe distance away from the building, and the group got out as well. As they were getting to the meet point with the robots, they heard, saw, and felt the explosion. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention, before Jim opened that last file, he ordered the system to give him full command authority over the Protectrons so that he could command them away from the security station. Smart move on his part. So he instructed them to check Juliet and report her condition. One shifted into medical mode, conducted a scan, and reported that Juliet had been injected with a serum that would, in 72 hours, transform her into a super mutant. The robot then noted that there is an antidote. However, all of it had been in the building that was just destroyed. After some discussion and memory searching, they all came up with a full list of the chemicals needed to make the antidote. To make it hard on them, I had the Protectron report that two of the chemicals are Jessup Chemicals proprietary materials, and they would have to be attained from them. Jim attempted to order the Protectrons to return Juliet to Paul, but they reported that if they move outside of a six-block radius of the building, they have an auto-destruct program built in. So instead, he ordered them to patrol the area, treat any wounded they encountered, and keep the area secured. So the group returned Juliet. They mentioned the super mutant serum as well as the antidote. Paul was surprised, noting that they figured out how to finish it. I thought when I altered the formula, they'd never be able to get it. But they did. He also told them that if they could get the two chemicals from Jessup, he could put together the antidote in time. He said that Victor owes him a favor and that if the group was wanting to get paid, they should see him. But the group was determined to get the chemicals without seeing Victor first, since they know they're on a time crunch. They headed to Union Station, which Paul had told them is the chemical factory for Jessup. Now, since my group's a higher level than yours, I kitted out the security here, putting laser turrets all over the roof and a ton of security patrol in the perimeter. I did note the employee entrance, and when the group discussed finding a couple of suitable volunteers to hand over their credentials, I had Clayton's character, because he wasn't there this week, suggest that maybe Victor could help them, because if Paul was suggesting it, there had to be a reason for it. So the group headed back to Diamond Pass and met with Victor, who informed them that he could quickly get all the other chemicals they needed for the antidote. While he could provide them with access cards and uniforms, the issue they'd be running into is that security codes are changed every 16 hours, and he's sure the cards he has now are way out of sequence. So, he suggested the group head to Sular to make a deal with High Intelligence to get the cards coded. He also gave them a data card he'd stolen from them, plus 5,000 caps to get a card they'd stolen back for him. He also gave them 500 caps to pay them for the coding they'd be doing. Yes, this is the encounter we built for down the line with high intelligence. My group didn't go in the order I thought they would, so we're adjusting on the fly. I'm kind of getting used to it by this point. The entire interaction with high intelligence went without incident. They made the deal, exchanged data cards, and got their cards coded with the most recent security codes. They were also informed that they had about 11 hours left, so they'd be aware. The group headed back to Victor, handed over the data card he wanted, then were escorted by Bruno to the storage house to get their uniforms from Otto. Again, that encounter went exactly how we wrote it, and the group got their uniforms and got out of Diamond Pass. 
We ended the session with the group getting just outside of Union Station, and that's where we'll pick up next time around. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Next week, we'll build on the various revelations our group's had over the past month or so, and we'll start bringing out more of the major players in this campaign. Plus, as the group still hasn't found Jackson Denman, they're going to be looking for him as well. Until then, check out our other fine show, Role Playing History. This week, we're deep diving the play-by-mail game Hyborian War. It's a really interesting game, so you're going to want to check that out. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgingandproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license from Bethesda Games, and they're used on this program for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out all of the Fallout role-playing game stuff they produce or any of the other fine game products in their catalog, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. Our email is badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we shift the campaign into second gear and start getting a better idea of just how messed up the power structure of our campaign world is. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting time. But that's next week, folks. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.